You're listening to The Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. Serious talk about the sacred book. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Thanks, everyone, for joining us on the podcast today. Today's topic is, what is the Book of Romans trying to do? And we're going to be talking to... Never heard of it. Never heard of the Book of Romans? No. Oh, wait. Yeah, no, I heard of it. (laughs) It's in the Bible. All right. But we're going to be talking with Beverly Gaventa. She's a professor of New Testament at Baylor University. And she she was also at Princeton Theological Seminary for many years before that. She's written, you know, a bunch of books because she's a scholar and a very good one. Uh, Like commentaries on the book of Acts and 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. Her most recent book is one I'm actually very excited about. And this is why I'm really happy to have her on the podcast. It's, It's a title, a book entitled, When in Romans. Get it? When in Romans, an invitation to linger with the gospel according to Paul. And this is really her sweet spot because her career is a lot about the interpretation of Paul and especially Romans uh, in, in looking at the historical context and looking at the theology of Paul uh, because you're paying attention to the historical context. And when you do that... Romans isn't what you always think it is. It's, it's doing relation- something else. What's been your relationship with kind of Paul and Romans before in in previous years for you? Well, I guess you know in previous years, pretty common I think to many people out there listening, the Book of Romans tended to be sort of a story of how you avoid hell. Mm-hmm. It's it's right. here's what you got to do to be saved, and Paul sort of goes on like that. The problem with that, and many people have 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 riffed on this. The problem with that is that if if that's how you read Romans, most of Romans is irrelevant because he spends like the last three chapters talking about why you shouldn't worry about dietary restrictions right. and things like that. That so, reminds me of our episode with uh, Daniel Kirk, where we talk about if if the death and resurrection of Jesus is the most important part, mm-hmm. then most of the Gospels are irrelevant. Right, exactly. Yeah. And sometimes we, we, we lift things out of the Bible and make them prominent when they might not even be there, and that sort of makes it confusing. But even with all that, you know, Romans is sort of a confusing book. Right. It? it just oh, yeah. sort of goes on forever. I, I feel like sometimes it's confusing for Paul. <laughs> well, I mean, He's processing. Here's a, I think one place where where Beverly and I might disagree a little bit, and that's fine. And she's probably right. But I read Romans, and I feel like Paul, man, get an editor. Just you just the sentences are long, and yeah. you sort of backtrack, mm-hmm. and then you skip stuff, and then you come back to it, and and just, you use big just, words. You're not sophisticated enough. Yeah, I guess I that's probably that's it. it. He writes like I do, which is incomprehensible. <laughs> which is problematic. It's a big problem. So. Uh, Well, let's get into this conversation with uh, Beverly Gaventa. Let's do it. Because sometimes when people use covenant, what they mean is if humans don't keep their side, then God doesn't keep God's side. And I don't think Paul is saying that. I think Paul anticipates a final revelation, an apocalypse, if you will, in which all will see who Jesus is and all will be redeemed. Well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. Microdosing can help you get into a relaxed, focused zone easier and stay there longer. It has benefits for workout recovery, sleep, anxiety relief, boosting creativity, and even pain relief. You know, Jared, I have a really good friend of mine who saw that I was taking microdose gummies and She said, can I try some? And so I gave her some of the sativa strand and she said it has made such a difference for her at work and just in general, just feeling more alert and more focused. And it's quite amazing. So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com. Promo code normal people. That's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com. Promo code normal people for 30% off and free shipping. Microdose.com. Promo code normal people. Beverly, welcome. Thank you for being on our podcast. We're excited to have you here. Well, thank you for having me, Pete. I've been looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, so have we, because, yeah, let's talk about Romans. How does that sound? That sounds great. You you know a couple things about Romans, don't you? Uh, I know a lot of things I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) That's okay. That's pretty good, because I think I know everything about Romans. I'm probably wrong, though, right? 
<laughs> That's why you're here, Beverly, to sort of straighten people like me and Jared out. But anyway, Romans, okay, here we go. It's the first epistle in the order of the New Testament, and yet people freak out when they read this book because it's it's pretty difficult to understand. In, in your opinion, what are some of those things that make Romans just a difficult book to understand? Your question reminds me of a student I had once who actually broke into tears. I came to my office in tears because she'd been asked to read all the way through the letter beginning to end, and she just said she couldn't do it. Uh, Why couldn't she do it? I think part of the difficulty is the abstract character of Paul's language or what seems to us to be abstract. I think it's the way he reasons that we find difficult. I also think the, ch- the importance that the church has placed on it in the West for 2,000 years has made it so important to us that we're in awe of it before we begin. Yeah. It's important to begin by thinking, by realizing that it's actually a letter to real people uh, from a real person. And uh, it, it, it did not begin as a, uh, as a text over which people mauled and argued and reflected uh, intently. Yeah. Uh, do you think, I mean, speaking of Romans being difficult to understand, I mean, it's an intimidating book. Do you think Paul's a good writer? I think Paul is a good writer in the sense that he is a very careful writer. Yeah. I don't think he's kind of making this up on the fly. I think this book has been, this letter has been reflected on by him and worked out uh, in conversation with people. But I, I think it's a difficult, part of the difficulty is that he does not know these people or he doesn't know many of them well. So he is being very cautious in the way he writes. And that makes it harder for us than, say, reading 1 Corinthians, where it's not so hard to figure out what some of the problems are. Mm -hmm. So maybe go into that, Beverly, just kind of at the highest level, if you had, uh, you know, one or two sentences to talk about what is Romans about, what are the problems that... Paul is addressing, what compelled him to write this letter, do you think? The short, the short answer to any question for me about how Paul, what Paul is doing in this letter is that he is introducing the gospel to a, in, its, in its total size, in its cosmic to people who um, have only a rudimentary sense of it. He is after the cosmic, the universal grasp of the gospel. And I think that at least as Paul understands them, the folks in Rome have a fairly small understanding of what the gospel is about. I think these are largely Gentile Christians, what we would call Christians, who believe that the gospel has given them access to standing in Israel. And Paul does not disagree with that, but there's a lot more at stake for him than simply incorporating Gentiles. Okay. Well, how that's not typical how people understand at least in my experience, how people understand the book of Romans. Uh, are there some common misunderstandings of the book? I mean, in your experience, what's the problem you're trying to correct in your students? Let's put it that way. When they read Romans, what doors are you trying to open for them? And what doors do you want to close for them? Well, that's a great question. I think for most of my students still, and for most readers of Romans, Romans is about... Uh, an individual, me, having a relationship to God and uh, being impeded in that relationship by sin. 
And so God sends Jesus to help me deal with sin. And the cure is uh, Jesus' death. If I believe in that, then I have a good relationship with God. If I don't, then I stand condemned. So the letter becomes very much about the individual's interaction with God. It's between two characters, if you will. Well, where does that misunderstanding come from? Is that like a Reformation thing, or is that maybe broader than that? Is it earlier than that, or, or where? Well, I, I think in part the Reformation has some responsibility for that, although it's become too easy to blame the Reformers for everything. <laughs> I think in this country it's deeply connected with our own individualism and our own individual piety. Um, I think in part the, re- the reformers have some responsibility, but I also think that, um, that there's a kind of American uh, individualistic reading of, of not just Paul, but scripture in general uh, that, that gets in the way here. Uh, you, you mentioned earlier this idea of the universal grasp of the gospel. The first thing that came to my mind was often the, you know, helping Jews at that time understand that the gospel reaches out to Gentiles as well, not just to the Jewish people. Is that what you mean by the universal grasp of the gospel that Paul is writing about, or do you mean something else? Well, I mean that, but I also mean, uh, I mean more than that. I'm struck by how often in the letter Paul uses the word all. Um, it's a, it, in Greek, as you know, it's a three-letter word, and it, at least at its core, all, every. And I always say to, often say to students, if you want to learn uh, the most important word in Greek, in Romans, one of my, one of my candidates would be the little word pas, all. Uh, having talked already about God and Jesus, I'm not leaving them out. But I think for Paul, all doesn't simply mean all in the sense that now Gentiles have a chance, but that God's action is for all humanity and even for all creation. So when I say cosmic, I really do mean, or universal, I really do mean universal. Um, that whether people believe or not in the present, God's action is for all. Well, yeah, I mean, that, that is a different way of reading Romans, isn't it? For a lot of people, it's corporate. Yes. And even, you know, beyond corporate, universal, including cosmic, right. which raises a question, I think, uh, that people would be asking, and it's a good one. What about salvation? And what does Paul mean by salvation? Yeah, of course, he assumes that we know what he means. But as he talks about it, as he he unpacks the argument of the letter, salvation is more than just my relationship to God or yours or any individual's. And I think it's even more than Israel's covenant with God or incorporating uh, Gentiles in Israel's covenant with God, which is the way a lot of people read it these days. I think salvation for Paul is rescuing, is God's rescue of the world from powers uh, who oppose God. Um, powers named sin and death, but they also have a lot of other names at the end of Romans 8. Um, and he sees all of humanity, Jew, Gentile, uh, and even all of creation, held captive. And so part of what salvation means is the defeat of these powers, and the, um, uh, at which point, you know, he talks about our being God's children, uh, becoming uh, the, about the, the universal praise of God. I'm thinking now of Romans 15. So, um, 
you know, whenever we think of Romans and salvation, when Pete asked that question, I think go back to my Sunday school days uh, as a Southern Baptist in Texas, and we talked a lot about the Romans road and how Romans was used to sort of talk about this individualistic um, salvation, that it's, it is for me a personal relationship with Jesus. And Romans was kind of the main text for that. Where, I'm going to go back to maybe something Pete talked about, but maybe we can dig a little further how did we get that so in your it sounds like what you're saying is we maybe got that wrong and what are some what are some ways that you found in your classes or other ways where certain texts you know all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and and these texts that are used for this personal plan of salvation narrative um, how do you read that differently Um, are there any other specific ways that you've seen people get that wrong and, and maybe how it can be corrected in the larger context I'm thinking just a minute of how best to say this. Um, you know, when Paul says all have sinned, um, I actually don't think he says fall short of the glory of God. I think he says they were removed from the glory of God. But that's a, a diff- that's a very minor exegetical question. He does not yet unpack what he means by that. And he goes on in Romans 5 to talk about how um, sin and death entered the world and governed the whole of the world. They ruled like kings. And how in Christ's grace, God's gift in Christ defeats sin and death. So one of the ways I would um, begin to challenge this individualistic Roman road, sin, salvation, and sanctification, is just to notice some things in the text, Um, how he goes back to this argument about sin. Uh, Another thing to notice in the text is how little Paul talks about either repenting or being forgiven. Um, One of the things people don't notice in Romans is that he has almost nothing, virtually nothing to say about repentance. There's one quotation in Romans 4 that makes a reference to repentance. He has, uh, sorry, in Romans um, 2, there's one reference in Romans 4 but he doesn't say you were you repented and God forgave you. What he says is you were redeemed, and that's a plural. You, all of us, uh, we were redeemed from sin's power. So it's um, it's a much different conception of what God does in Jesus than this notion of being made an offer of, uh, for forgive for repenting and being forgiven. That's a whole lot more like the book of Acts than like Romans. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different. There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary, where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community. You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own path. You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid, and it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning, residential, online, and hybrid. You'll find a world-class faculty who will invest in you, a community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you for service and for leadership. Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for an Old People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener to the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at The Bible for Normal People. It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? 
They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast-growing trees makes it easy to order online, and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever. We got our bushes in, and you can tell I don't know what I'm talking about because I just call them bushes. But we got them in last night. And fast-growing trees knows what they're called. Exactly. That's the whole point. It comes with this placard that tells you exactly what to do like you were in fifth grade, which is the exact instruction <laughs> level that I needed. And it was very easy to follow. We loved the process. This spring, they have their best deals online up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com, code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. Yeah. Let me, I want I'm, I'm, a lot of things you're saying are floating in my head here. And a word comes to my mind that I think sort of summarizes what you're saying, but I don't want to put words in your mouth. Okay. And that's the idea of, you know, what Paul is proclaiming something very big, sort of just saying, this is the way it is now. This is what God has done. And the word that comes to my mind is recreation. Do you think that's helpful or, or would you have problems with that or would you want to play off of that a little bit? Actually, I think that's a very good word. Uh, in Galatians and in 2 Corinthians, he talks specifically about new creation. And I think that is under the surface in Romans, although he doesn't use the term specifically. But it's not simply restoration. It's uh, you know to an Adamic state. It's not even it's not forgiveness. It really is a recreation of the human and the cosmos. And the cosmos, yeah. So to be clear, what you guys are talking about is more a proclamation of what currently is, and not kind of this call for response. It's not saying if you. It's not conditional. If you do these things, then you are a new creation. It is, this is what Christ has done that has begun a new creation. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that is what I would say. Now, there certainly are elements in Romans that talk about uh, our accountability to God, especially in Romans 2 and in Romans 14. We will all stand before the judgment seat of God. And I don't dismiss those. But it's notable to me that what Paul says is, you know, the Lord will cause you to stand. That is to say, Paul is declaring what God has already done. There is an accountability of the human before God, but that accountability is not dependent on, that, that accountability is not uh, incompatible with God's redemptive mercy. An ultimate mercy. Not unlike the Hebrew Bible, where there is uh, the initiation of a covenant relationship between God and Israel, but yet there's responsibility on the part of the Israelites. Right. right. So Paul's actually very Jewish in putting it that way. Yeah, although I, I think he is, yes. Um, I get a little nervous about that language because sometimes of covenant, because sometimes when people use covenant, what they mean is if humans don't keep their side, then God doesn't keep his God's side. And I don't think Paul is saying that. I think Paul anticipates a uh, final um, revelation an apocalypse, if you will, in which all will see who Jesus is and all will be redeemed. I'm thinking here of Philippians 2. You know, every uh, knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Yeah, there is sort of a universalistic flavor in Romans if you come at it from an angle that some people might not be used to. Something else rises to the surface. That's right. That God's act in Christ is so big and so effective, right. it's going to fix everything. Right. 
Well, one of the best places to see that is in the second half of Romans 5, because what Paul says is Adam's action did certain things. It unleashed sin and death in the world. It opened the door for sin and death to come into the world. And of course, that means Adam's action implicated all of humanity. And then he says Christ's action is even bigger and better. You know, if you're thinking about it in Madison Avenue terms, Christ is the new improved Adam, except that Christ reverses what Adam did. So if you then imagine that Christ's action only involves some people, the analogy falls apart altogether, and Paul ends up saying that Adam is more powerful than Christ. Which would be a problem for Paul. It would be a big problem for Paul. He also says, I mean, I, 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 I track with you completely when you say that, but also in the second half of Romans, and this is you know, Romans, what, 5, 12 to 21, right? That second half where he talks about Adam. He, he sometimes uses all language, then he lapses into many language. Yes. And I wonder why he does that. My, my instinct says he's doing it because he's backpedaling. Oh, I actually don't think he's backpedaling. That's I, fine. Tell us why. Yeah, I think that actually at that point, I think part of it is just stylistic in order to avoid using the same term all of the time. Uh, but the logic of his argument, as I just said, makes it almost impossible for him not to mean all there when he says many. Um, and then you go to the end of Romans 11, you get uh, 11.32, which I think sums up the, much of the letter, you know, that God uh, confined all to disobedience, that God might have mercy on all. So how does that play in the larger corpus of Paul? So, and where does Romans fit in the history of kind of Paul's letter writing? Is this, is he early on? Is this his most mature thought? And how does Romans interact with his other letters on this idea of Christ having mercy on all and this being this universal uh, recreation? Well, Romans is certainly toward the end of Paul's letters. Uh, Philippians, depending on who's doing the reconstruction, Philippians, maybe later, Philemon. Um, but I guess I want to back up just a little bit and observe how, off, how, how often Christians who read Paul become very vexed over the question, not just Paul, but the whole of the New Testament, all of the Bible, become very vexed over the question of who's in and who's out. And I just don't think that Paul, in any of his letters, is especially concerned about that question. Hmm. He's building communities. He's declaring what God has done. He is trying to strengthen those communities. But he's just not terribly interested in reflecting on what happens or is going to happen to people who are on the outside. He's too busy going around saying, in Christ, God has pressed reset on all of creation, and you get to be a part of it. Right, right. So his concern is, I mean, I, and I think it's a very urgent concern of his, to declare this good news, to declare it as widely as possible, and to invite people into this community that lives with the implications of this knowledge. Uh, I don't think he's worried about what happens to people who don't hear it for whatever reason. Uh, hmm. Except always to keep that door open. Um, I, I just don't think Paul is as eager to draw those lines between us and them as uh, a lot of his interpreters have been. Mm -hmm. so, so Paul is not writing letters in an effort to make sure as many people as possible go to heaven after they die. 
I don't think that's his concern at all. And and, and just to, to phrase it, give maybe an elevator pitch. Again, just to reiterate for the sake of our, our, our listeners, because I think for a lot, this is a new idea. I find it pretty exciting, but it might be sort of a new idea. So what is Paul after? What's, what's his end game here in, in traversing the Mediterranean world for thousands of miles over 10 or 15 years, however long it was, on and off, of telling this good news to people? What's, why is he bothering to do that if not get people to heaven? That's how the normal argument goes. I need to think just a minute the best way to put this. I think the reason Paul is so urgent about what he does is that he really believes it. He believes that God has acted and that it's urgent that people know this and live with this. And part of what uh, I think we've sometimes missed because we've made Paul to be such a bloodless thinker is the sheer joy, uh, the doxology that comes through in these letters, especially in Romans. I think for Paul, this is uh, a gospel that elicits praise, joy, community, and he wants people to have it for that reason. Now, he will say, uh, he does say, God delivers us from the present evil age, you know, by which I think he means the rule of sin and death. And that's, that is God, that is something God has done already. Uh, what he wants people to know is that it has happened. It is in the process of bringing, being brought to completion by God. And we're invited to live with the, with the knowledge of it and the joy of it. So the dominion of sin and death, which, which interestingly, those things are personified, right? Yeah. They're, they're, they're these things that rule, right? So sin and death, their, their domain, their dominion rather, has come to an end, and what has taken its place? Is it enough to say Jesus? Uh, God's rule in Jesus, yes, grace. Um, which, which, for, which means simply gift, God's powerful, unmerited gift uh, of life. That is, it, it is this new life. You know, when he talks about sin and death, I think he means it. I think he means, you know, in our terms, the kind of death um, that is lived by those who, say, are the victims of um, of sex trafficking, or those who become child soldiers against their own will. I think he means all of us who are out of control, right? We're out of our own control because we are subject to uh, a view of the world that is uh, obsessed with, you know, in an American context, money and power and fame and so forth. And he declares that this is not, this, that God has already overturned this. We just don't see it yet. Why don't we see it? Well, because sin and death have been defeated in Jesus, uh, but they have not yet left the field. You know, they're still fighting. <laughs> uh, they haven't given up. They have not yet um, waved the, the flag of uh, defeat. And, you know, you see this very clearly at the end of Romans 8. Um, I don't think there's any way Paul could have written that text had he not understood that there are, and believed, that there are still powers in the world that want to displace the power of God, to control God's beloved. So I want to draw back just for a minute on, I was thinking back to my days in, in classes on Romans and always being very confused by the language. I think it's in chapter 11 where Paul's trying to understand, it seems like this relationship between God and Israel and the Gentiles and uses this language of being cut off and regrafted in. Right. How, how does that fit into this universal grasp? Because it's almost like he's wrestling with, 
the, you know, the Jewish people have been cut off and God can regraft them in. How does that fit into this narrative? Yeah, that's a great question. And I guess it, it allows me to say one of the things um, that I, that I most want to, that I always want to say about reading Romans, which is that we have to read it as an argument. Um, sometimes people take individual statements and rip them out of context, and then that becomes the whole of the argument. Um, these are not, you know, these are not steps on an escalator where each one is exactly the same as every other step. You kind of have to watch him move to see which part, where, where an argument goes. I think in Romans 11, you know, he's, he's now had three chapters in which he's worked through this seeming quandary. Uh, is God, has God been faithless to Israel? Is it possible that God has rejected Israel? And um, he comes to the conclusion, I, I think he's known from the beginning, he was going there, that God has not rejected Israel, but that God is using the hardening of Israel, which God has done, God is using Israel to bring in Gentiles, uh, to, to declare to Gentiles this good news. So that passage about being grafted back in, you know, is um, anticipating what he's going to say in the very next section. Hmm. Hardening has come upon part of Israel, and so all Israel will be saved. And I think he means all when he says it here. Yeah. I mean, I've heard it. You, you mentioned an argument. Paul's making an argument. I, I have found that to be the case, too. You have to track with him, which, of course, is difficult. Uh, but I've heard, I'm trying to think of where I read this or where I heard this, but I've heard it said that Paul's argument is basically this. He's arguing for the righteousness of God, that God is actually righteous. Uh, do you know what I'm talking about? And if you do, do you agree? I, I do know what you're talking about, and I, I don't disagree with that statement. I guess the problem for me is that I don't find it terribly helpful. Because, at least in my ears, and maybe this is my problem, the term righteousness has such a moral, even moralistic character to it, or it, um, it, it's, it sounds like a quality of God. Yeah. And I see Paul talking about a quality. Uh, I, I see Paul talking about a whole series of actions of God on God's behalf, um, by God on our behalf. So to me, righteous, you know, this is about God's righteousness. Well, yes, it is, but it's about God's actions, God's saving actions that display that righteousness, if that's the way you want to put it. Uh, I agree with that. I, I think, you know, you know much more about this than I do. I, but the righteousness of God is an action. It's not a quality. You know, be righteous as God is righteous doesn't mean have this inner disposition. It means acting the right way. And again, I wish I remember where I read this, but uh, Paul has to argue that God is righteous, God is acting the right way, because what he's been doing seems odd. A crucified and risen Messiah is not really part of the playbook. Uh, the, the degree to which Gentiles can be part of the family of God the way they are, and circumcision doesn't really count for what it used to count for, and dietary restrictions don't count for what they used to count for, this could... Uh, raise in the minds of Jews, okay, if this is what God is doing, then God is not just. God is not righteous, because he's been telling us all along that these sorts of things are actually very important. Yes, I think that is a helpful way of putting it, although I do wonder to how, how deeply that concern goes in this letter. Um, that is to say, simply to justify what God has done 
to give an account. Um, I, I think that to give an account that would be acceptable uh, to Jews, it seems to me that that in five to eight, especially, he's not so much trying to show that God is right to have done what God has done as he is to say, this is what God has done, and therefore this is what righteousness looks like. Mm. So I would kind of reverse that argument. Yeah. It doesn't go far enough, perhaps, the the way that was phrased. So Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Uh, we can't let you escape here, uh, Beverly, without <laughs> talking about the hot button issue in Romans for a lot of people today, which is the second half of chapter one. Yeah. Uh, and just you know, share your thoughts on Paul's comments there about men with men, women with women, and maybe like why does he even bring this up, and how do, does this fit in the letter, and how do we handle that today? Okay. Yeah, There's a nice short 30-second question for you. <laughs> Easy. Yeah. <laughs> well, why he brings it, I, I think it's important to back up and see that he brings it up, he brings up human sexuality there not because he's interested in talking about human sexuality. Paul actually has very little to say about that anywhere. But because he sees it as a symptom of humanity's um, and, and there, I think, in, in one, he's talking primarily about Gentiles, uh, Gentiles being out of control, Gentiles uh, refusing to recognize that God is God. And he uses the notion of sexuality, of same-sex relations, primarily because one of the he's playing on certain Jewish uh, stereotypes about Gentiles. Gentiles had a lot of stereotypes about Jews, but one of the things that Jews thought about Gentiles was that they slept with everybody, right? They worshipped all sorts of things, and they ate everything, and they slept with anybody. And I think he deliberately brings this up. Now, Gentile moralists also had uh, arguments about how same-sex relations was sex out of control. Because a person who was um, a, a, who was in control of him, uh, himself or herself uh, did not engage in sexual relations uh, uh, promiscuously, right? So there's a lot of culture. In other words, there's a lot of cultural baggage in what Paul says, and I think he brings it up in part in order to get his audience to side with him, as he's saying. Yeah, see, people, they, notice Romans 1.18 and following is all third person. Mm-hmm. They, they did this. They did this. Those other people, right? Not you. Right? Those other people. Um, now, do I think Paul himself would, would have approved of same-sex relations? Uh, probably not. That's talking about it in terms of how a first-century Jew would have thought about these things. Um, however, we are not finished reading that text until we have reached chapter two. This is part of my, my, my point earlier about having to read the whole argument because in two, one, he does what our buddy Richard Hayes has called a sting operation. You know, he immediately turns and says, uh, who are you to judge you there? Because you're doing the very same things. That is to say, not that everybody out there is engaged in same-sex relations or all the other things he lists in that chapter that we so conveniently overlook, like talking back to our parents and being gossips and this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. People fixated on two verses. But because he's saying everyone 
Jew and Gentile engages in rebellion against God. Right? So it the the for us to get um to, to be obsessed with reading Paul on human sexuality in those two verses uh, is really to get the text entirely wrong. Because it misses the argument. It misses the whole argument. And it misses the rhetorical That's right. purposes of doing that. So, so I guess, I mean, to be clear, in, in Romans 1, by saying they, 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 he's looking, probably referencing the Gentile world. And in chapter 2, he says, you know, who are you to judge? Is he focusing there, turning his gaze to his own Jewish people at that point? Well, I mean, it gets more complicated than that because yeah. the readers, the audience of the, of the letter is mostly Gentile. They are Gentile believers. They are probably synagogue groupies already. Mm-hmm. So this is, you know, sort of whipping them up against their neighbors. So okay. I this, that he turns and he's arguing against Jews so much as that he is allowing them, he's forcing them to see that what he said about they in one eighteen and following applies to the whole of humanity. It's not just your nasty neighbors or the Gentiles. It's all of us. Mm-hmm. So I have one kind of one Final question for me about that logic and the argument, you know, wanting to follow the logic. So I jumped to this uh, question in chapter one, actually over to chapter 13, where I think, you know, in the political climate we're in, there's been more and more discussion I've been hearing on what does it mean when Paul says you need to be submissive to the governing authorities? And how does that fit? Because I'm actually wondering in terms of this cosmic claim that we talked about earlier, that now the reign of sin and death, that's that, that language of reign and dominion is political language. How do you see, uh, what's Paul's argument in chapter 13, and why, why is it there? Well, I just spent about two years working on that text, so you're making me laugh. <laughs> well, just condense two years of research in about two minutes, if, if you can. <laughs> In, you know, on the surface, Romans 13 doesn't work with the rest of the letter, right? For exactly the reasons you just said. Mm-hmm. But a couple of things are important to notice here. One is this section of the letter is involved with protecting the community. So in part, what he's saying is, don't get yourself in trouble. But he also says, you know, when he says there is no authority except the authority that has been put in place by God, there's a little kicker there, right? Because author- the authorities uh, for Paul have been put in place by God. And, you know, it's like your mother said, I brought you into the world and I can take you out again. <laughs> uh, the authorities are subject to God. So um, that, that, that is, I think, a backhand way of saying they are merely God's servants. Uh, one of the little-known things about Romans 13 is that Paul has already referred in this letter to one ruler, and that is Pharaoh. And what he says in, in chapter 9, and what he says about Pharaoh is that God lifted Pharaoh up for God's own purposes. So, uh, you know, he's not saying Pharaoh was a good ruler, but he's saying God put Pharaoh in place. So I think, I think part of the way I read Romans 13 is to say, don't make of them more than they are. Uh, hmm. Recognize, and I, I would not say be submissive, but recognize the authorities that exist. They're not your enemies. Uh, they're not the enemies of God's people. Uh, they are, they made, you know, when Paul talks about God's enemies, they're sin and death. They're not the government. They're not human. They can be used by sin and death, and they can be used by God. So, again, it's a matter of trying to track with the argument yes. and not finding a verse. Right. 
Because I think people, I mean, American Christians use that verse depending on who's in the White House. Absolutely. Right. They'll go, they'll go with it or go not. Well, listen, we're, we're coming close to the end of our time here, Beverly, but one last question. Okay. You might have to think about this for a second. Just, just as we close, summarize again for us the purpose of the book of Romans in a sentence or two. Let, let people walk away with, with maybe a different vision for what Romans is than what they might be used to hearing. And feel free to pause. I think the purpose of Romans is to help the Roman believers understand that what God has done in Jesus is for individuals. It's also for communities, the whole of Israel, the whole of the Gentile world. Even more than that, it is also for the whole of creation. So it's big. It's big. It's, it's big not big. individualistic. It includes individuals, but it's not just about individuals. Right. Okay. Well, thank you, Beverly. Listen, we really appreciate you taking the time to be on our podcast, and this has been wonderful, and, and uh, I know a lot of people are going to be downloading this and listening and benefiting from it as much as we have. Well, I hope so. Uh, let me know when you have it, when it's in place, and I will at least link to it on Facebook. Absolutely. And, uh, Jared, did you know that I had recently written a piece on Romans 13? No, I no, know. I, I did not know that. <laughs> I'm going to send you a PDF of it because I, I literally did spend about two years working on it. Okay, that would be great. Be great, thank you. That'd be great. Is there any anything else, Beverly, that you've written written, uh, written recently, um, or any place online that people can find you if they want to learn more about you and the work you've done? Well, they could look at uh, the Baylor University Religion Department website. I don't have a website of my own. This book that Pete read. Neither did Paul. Yeah, right. So you're fine. Yeah. Jesus did. I think Jesus may have, but Paul didn't. So. Yeah, I don't. I don't know about that. But um, this Quinn and Romans would be the most recent thing that I think people would, uh, might be interested in. Absolutely. Right. Okay. Thank you so much, Beverly. Have a good evening. Bye. Thanks again for listening. Be sure to check out Beverly's book, Win in Romans, an invitation to linger with the gospel according to Paul. And that is a really practical, readable book. This is not an academic treatise. This is just a really good book. That's great. I, I can't recommend it highly enough, frankly. Good. So. Uh, and you can find us online as well. You can find me on Twitter at jbias. And you can also follow me on Twitter at Pete Enns and Facebook at Peter Enns. And I invite you to listen uh, to uh, other podcasts and to visit us also on our website uh, peteends.com you can check out my latest book speaking schedule if that interests you and stuff like that and most importantly you can continue uh, with uh, the rest of us uh, with conversations on the blog like the one we had today thanks again everyone we hope you join us next time